Good morning, everyone. I don't actually want to break anything. I don't want to take us up a gear because actually I think we're in the right place. And, uh, you know, I really get the sense that we are being respectful on, on a day like today. And uh, so even though I am going to talk to you and do the talky bit, I, I don't want us to lose that sense of where we already are. One of the things that I will be touching on is... Um, is death. So we are thinking about the people that have died in the wars. We, some of you may be thinking about peop other people in your lives today that have died. I am, uh, because I have lost um, people in my life. And it's affected me in who I am and what I'm about. And already, you may be thinking, that guy's getting emotional, because I am an emotional sort of guy. And I apologise for that if that takes away a bit about what I'm going to say. But actually, in apologising, you've just got to accept that that's who I am. I'm a big fella. I know that. I look in the mirror at me every day. So I do know <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not standing here with any illusions of not being big. But I am. And I, I have a heart. And I, as I say, but this is a story of, of hope. Because actually, we all know that somebody that died many, many years ago, a guy called Jesus, and he died for a reason. And what I want to share you to you today is a bit about my story, about why on a particular day in my life, I didn't die. I didn't die, I believe, for a reason. And part of that reason is a part of what I'm doing today, sharing you my story. So, and I believe that the Lord Jesus decided on that day that I went through a calamity in my life. It wasn't my time. And, and you have to please hear my heart in that. I am not standing you in front of you with remembering death in my own life. I'm not standing in front of you to say to you that I am more important than anybody else that's gone before me. Um, that I still have conversations with, with Jesus about why other people have died. I am not standing in front of you to say that I am so important that I wasn't allowed to die on this particular day. Does that make sense? Because sometimes if we hear that and they think that's who I am, you might misunderstand some of what I'm about to say. But I'm not that. I am one of you. We are all in this together. But what I really want to focus on is actually it is a good news story. So when we reflect, and today is reflecting, there is still a good news story to be told about why, when it isn't our turn, what is it that we should then be doing with our life? I um, am a retired police officer. I retired four years ago. I served my 30 years, and I served in London for the, my first five years because I, it was quite close to where I live. I'm from Essex and there are a number of good people in the room from Essex and those of you that are struggling, struggling with my accent then hard luck <laughs> because I'm speaking properly. <laughs> Since I arrived here yesterday I've heard a number of accents. Some of the conversations I've actually stayed involved in. <laughs> Some of them I found difficult and when the Northern Irish chap joined in last night I was well away. <laughs> but because I was uh, uh, an Essex boy, um, 
And don't believe everything you see on the telly about Towie and all the rest of that. That isn't all of us. But it meant that... I can still see you, Dan, in the corner. It meant, it meant that I had the opportunity of serving in London, but then I didn't quite... It didn't quite fit what I wanted to do with my police career. I wanted to serve my community where I, where I was born up. So I went back to Essex. I served a further 25 years in Essex. And for the last 15 years, I was a detective constable in the major investigation section. Which meant that I was um, part of a team that was behind the scenes. So we did lots of surveillance. We did lots of covert policing. We deployed undercover officers in certain areas. Uh, we, we dealt with some of the more serious crimes that were affecting Essex at that time. So things like uh, murders that in fact in, in, impacted communities uh, and some of that involved corruption and corrupt police officers which we had to deal with first before you can then deal with the, the crime that you're investigating. Um, and also some pretty significant drug dealers. And, and I don't know if you know that there was three of our most significant drug dealers shot dead in a Range Rover. Uh, it's called The Rettenden Murders. Um, there has been a number of films about that. Uh, there's another one coming out in a couple of weeks' time. I'm going to be interested to see who they get to play my role this year. <laughs> in the past, they've slightly got it wrong. I mean, Richard Gere's all right. <laughs> but... He's a, he's a little bit shorter than me, and, I, and I, when he did my part, I thought, I'm not quite gelling with, with what he was doing. So, you know, I'm hoping they've got it a bit better this time. But um, I laugh, but actually some of what they say is, is true. Some of it isn't, because they have a bit of poetic license, like all filmmakers do. So that's the type of thing that I was dealing with. I want to tell you that because it puts in context what I'm about to tell you about this Thing that happened to me in my life. The other thing I always forget to mention is while I, I give this story is also the fact that at this time I believed in Jesus. I was a Christian, I was brought up in a Christian household and I made a commitment to, to understand that Jesus meant something to my life as, a, as a, probably a 13 year old boy. Um, however, because of life, because I moved from home, because I went to start serving as a police officer. Um, I didn't really live what I would consider to be a very Christian lifestyle. So I wasn't going to church, I wasn't praying, I wasn't doing anything like that. Although I had in me, I still, I can't really describe it too well, but I know that I still had my root faith in me somewhere. It didn't leave me, so I had it. So when I came back to faith as a, as a young 22-year-old. I've got to get this right because my wife is watching, making sure I get all the figures right. About 21, 22. Um, I really had, I was at a Louis Palau concert in London, and I really had a new understanding of what it meant to, to follow Jesus. So I've done my police career with a knowledge in Jesus as a believer. Some days I kept back fairly private, in other days, I was a bit more open and a bit more confident about that. Okay, so sometimes in life, we, we, we try and lead these two lives, don't we? Sometimes we match them up well, sometimes not so well. So that is me, okay? So on this day that I want to tell you about, I was part of the surveillance team. We are investigating a pretty significant drug dealer in Essex. And when I say significant, we're talking multi-kilos of cocaine. So we're talking top echelons of drug supply. Welcome, you've missed the best bit, you two. The, 
the people that we're involved in, we, we, we couldn't just you know, go and knock on their door and walk in and find their commodity and arrest them and deal with them. We had to be a bit clever. And I am very, very clever. And in my... Teresa. <laughs> I like Teresa at the moment. Um, so we had to be cleverer than the drug dealers to, to catch them. So to be able to catch people in the act of supplying substantial amounts of drugs. You have to be there, you have to witness it, but everything you do has to be in an evidential form so that you then can produce it at court later on in life. So what I was there to do as this, you know, I had this tension going on and this is what I was investigating, is um, use some different tactics. And what it meant was, in, in the middle of that night, I could turn out a team to start to follow somebody that may be involved in the pretty significant drug uh, dealing that he was doing. So, I want to paint the picture. So I am the surveillance commander. There is about 14 guys. They've all gone home for the night, but we know we're right in the middle of this investigation. So I have sent them home with their surveillance cars with them. So they've got them on their drives. They're ready to go at the drop of a hat. This is in the days before mobile phones. So get that in your head. So there's a different type of communication going on here. I was the only one at that point in possession of the uh, surveillance team one mobile phone. I was the honourable one. I was the leader, so I had it. So if people needed us, they would ring me, and then we would do something called paging. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that little thing on the side of you, beep, 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 beep. Oh, what is it? I've got, a, I've got a message. You used to look around, didn't you? Nobody else had a message, but I have. I'm slightly more important than everybody else. And you used to read it. Before we, had, before we had words, though, we had numbers and things, didn't we? You know, ring this number. What's that all about? But we had pages. So I was in a position where I could turn out the surveillance team. And... Um, Again, my darling wife, she was putting up with me when I'm off duty and at home doing family life. I always had a bit of an ear on my pager or my computer or my laptop. And at half past two in the morning, it all woke up. So I woke up because something was happening. My target had got out of bed very early and was on the road and all the intelligence that I was gathering at that point was saying, today is the day that he's on the road. I had to turn out my team. Everybody was very happy with me ringing them at half past two in the morning, and all I said to them was, our target is on the move. We need to try and get what's called eyes on. So from a surveillance perspective, somebody in the team, I needed to get in a position where they could see the target, see his car, see where we're going, and then direct the rest of the team as where we were going. So on this morning, before we had eyes on, we had to get up, get in our cars and make ground because we had to get quickly behind our target. Well, we didn't manage to do this this morning, but we were getting intelligence as to where he was and where he was going. So all my team coming from different parts of Essex, some quite a long way away, we hadn't formed up as a team yet, so we are all going the one way. I was on my own. In, in my favourite surveillance vehicle, which was a Cavalier automatic. Uh, it had a little button on the automatic gear stick, which put it into turbo. It was so powerful. 
if I did it going round roundabouts, I would be able to wheel spin the whole way round the roundabout. Not that I did that, I was a reliable police officer. <laughs> Just to, I tested it a couple of times and it, and it did happen. So there we were all, we were all going, I think, quite quickly. We're all trained, advanced drivers, so we, we, we take our driving very professionally and we are moving pretty quick. The other thing we've got to do as covert officers, we've got to do it quick without drawing a lot of attention to ourselves. ourselves. Now, this is very difficult, and uh, there are stories that when we're training, we think we're being very covert, and we move through a town, and nobody knows we've even been through. But I have it on good information that actually, this comes from my wife, because one day our training went through our local town, and my wife phoned me up within five minutes. Have you just been through the town? Because it's chaos. People were all over the place. But we had to make ground. We had to get eyes on. So we were going quickly. But the intelligence dried up. It stopped telling me where our subject was. It stopped telling me what route he was taking. So I made the decision, this is ridiculous. We can't just chase shadows. So I, I phoned around my team and said, right, everybody, if you get to the Watford Gap services and we've had no further intelligence, we are to stop. Got to the Watford Gap. I'm sitting having my, probably a latte, probably a croissant, because I'm quite a posh Essex sort of guy, when the intelligence came back into me again and said that our target was on the M6, travelling north of Birmingham, heading towards Wales. So I quickly made a decision, right, rather than everybody come in and we tell everybody, get back in your car, start to, I, I communicated that so everybody, I was the only one in the services. That is my last memory of what I'm about to tell you of. From this point to probably about three and a half laters, I have complete amnesia. If anybody suffers from amnesia in the room, then you can understand what I'm about to say. This is something I don't really still understand. In my Christian belief, I actually believe that God has locked up a, such a horrific incident, he, he knows that that could be quite um, compelling in my life. So he's actually locked that up for me. Do you know, in my, my, some of my time as being a, quite an inquisitive sort of guy, I wonder, actually, Lord, could you just unlock that so I could actually see what happened? So when I'm doing these talks, I can actually give it as a bit of a reality from myself. But I can't do that. I have amnesia. So what I'm about to tell you is from other witness accounts. So from uh, members of the public that watched what happened, from police officers that, that came to the scene to deal with the incident, but also my own surveillance team, who I uh, rely and respect because they are people that gather information, they record it mentally, they write it down, and they can give it later on. So what I'm about to tell you is taken from a lot of other people's testimony and also from looking at some of the physical evidence that was there on that day. Can we put the picture of my car up? So, I'm now leaving the services in that car, which is my Vauxhall Cavalier. I was driving that up the M1, along the M6, when in front of me, an accident, completely nothing to do with us, nothing to do with what we were doing, it wasn't our target, it wasn't one of my team, an accident has happened on the M6. It's a dark, dark place 
it was wet, it was raining. It's one of those places that if you, that, that if you were walked through, you might start to feel uncomfortable. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Do you know you go some places and you think, ooh, I don't like it here. I think it's one of those places. An accident happened in front of me. A car um, lost control, went into the central barrier, and the driver, we think possibly, might have been wanted by the police. He ran away, leaving his car stoved in the central barrier. Well, then what happened was that the car rolled back in front of the motorway. Remember, this is a dark motorway, M6, it's raining. Car rolls back, and the car covers now lane one and lane two of the M6 westbound. I'm coming along. We're going pretty quickly. We're trying to catch up with our subject. So they think what I've done is used all my, my skills as, because as advanced drivers we look ahead, we look into the distance. They think I probably saw what was going on. So they think what I've done is, is looked. I can't stop in time, but I can get past because there's a gap on the fast lane. So they think what I've done is probably gone to the fast lane, carried on down that outside lane, but unbeknown to me, in that fast lane, the engine block of the car had dropped and was now sitting in the fast lane. I'm coming along. I hit the engine block. We've got reports and testimonies from people coming the other way that they, as they came, they could see the underside of a car going in the other direction. That was me. I was up in the air. I came down. I think they call that fishtailing. Not quite sure. Came down, span, hit the central reservation, then stopped in the fast lane. That would be bad enough. Coming along behind me, some are members of the public. There was a Calibra and a Sunny. They also possibly hit it, but at some stage they've come through the first accident and they've hit me while I'm sitting there probably in a bit of a daze. So then a Calibra has come and slammed into me. A Sunny has slammed to us. So we've got a serious three-car accident going on, and I'm sitting there. I'm on my own in my car, and they, they think that, that that's what's happened. That's how the accident has happened. Coming along is my surveillance team. Unbeknown of where I am, where our target is, where the rest of the team are. The possibility was is that our target was well ahead of us, we think also that possibly one of our surveillance team was ahead of me, I wasn't in front, and everything that happened in this accident happened behind them because they were unaware of what was going on, so they would keep going. The rest of my team turn up, they get to the first site of the accident, they're looking around, and they see it isn't one of our cars. So they're relieved that none of us are involved. There's nothing really that they can do. They've got a job to do, so they slowly come through the accident, and then they're faced with the second accident. And then the lead car in the surveillance team looks, realising that that's one of our cars. They stop for a couple of minutes, and one of them decides, well, one of us has got to get out. One of us has got to go to that car. One of us has got to look. So he came to my car. And I can't imagine what was going through his mind at that point. You're about to meet one of your colleagues in this horrendous situation. What's he going to be like? He comes to the car, he looks in through the car door, and he cannot believe what he sees. 
are nowhere to be seen. I'm not in that car. If you look at that car, you will see, uh, if it's a slightly different angle, you would see that the car has been shunted back. The engine block has in fact come into the uh, footwell of the, the, where my feet should be. The um, airbag has gone off, and when the airbag was deployed, it was resting on my head shoulder, um, on the headrest. It was resting. So there was no place for a human being to be. And as you've already seen, I'm quite a large representation of the human species. There was nowhere for this big lump to be sitting at that time. And they just couldn't believe. Where, what's going on? So they look around in a panic, and they see me sitting across the motorway on the metal barrier, the armco, just sitting there. One of them comes over to me, and at that point, and this is where those of you that are a bit understanding more um, psychology and mental health and things like that, at that point, when he approached me, and he must have said something like, Phil, what's going on? At that point, I collapsed. So there's something in us, fight, flight, whatever you want to call it, where we are, we're keeping it together. I've got no memory. I may have even been in some form of unconscious, but... I don't know. But, but as soon as he did that, I went. My next memory is waking up in hospital some considerable time later. And I say a memory because this is where I start to come back to reality. So I'll tell you that, that I've had it locked up for a few hours. I was laying in my hospital bed and um, the nurse came over to me and took my blood pressure. And he went, oh, fantastic, Mr. Norton, your blood pressure's coming down. That's really great. It's really good to see that, that, that you're getting better. And I think at that point I was really quite rude. And I, 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 thankfully I can't remember exactly what, but the words I used were not ones I'd repeat here. But it was something along the lines of, who do you think you're talking to me like that? Don't patronise me and give me all your, oh, Mr. Norton, there, there, there. I don't want that. I'm a man. And the nurse, as quick as a shot, realised, oh my goodness, he's coming back. And he realised that I was thinking that was the first time he'd taken my blood pressure. He said, no, 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 Mr. Norton. He said, after, this is the fifth time I've taken your blood pressure. You have been here for a couple of hours. You don't realise it. And we understand you're coming back in, but this is the blood pressure. And, and we are really pleased that you're coming out of it. So I, I wasn't very happy with myself at that point, And I apologised. One of the other things that had been going on as well was that I had this fixation on my foot because I kept looking down in my hospital bed and realising I only had one boot on. I wore, do you, do you know Dr. Martin boots? Yeah? So I, I used to wear eight hole high, uh, laced up. I always used to do them up. So I, I, I was in my bed with my one boot on, my lovely boots, and one was done up and one was missing. And throughout that period of time, I'd been saying over and over and over again, obviously not realising I'd already asked that question, where's my boot? And one of the guys got so, two of the guys got so fed up, because my surveillance team had gathered around the bed by now, uh, really helpful and useful to all the hospital staff. I think they were, the hospital staff were really pleased that I was surrounded by these uh, plainclothes police, because some of them were a bit, um, they didn't look like police officers. 
Some of them were a bit dirty, ready for the day's work because they, that was their persona for the day. So I think at some stage, the staff asked them to leave. But two of them had already left to go and find my boot. They went to the scene. They found my car. They looked into that uh, and couldn't see my boot at all. But they realised that if they'd come back without it, I was still going to be going, where's my boot? So they got in to there, and in the window, underneath the, the, the driver's seat, was my other boot, still done up, underneath, quite jammed in. They took a long time in releasing my boot. But it was almost like a bit of a personal victory for them when they freed it, because they could now give the boot back to Phil. So they brought that back and told me, and I was going, wow, this is a bit struck. This is confusing. How has this all happened? So even at that early stage, we are all trying to put it all together. So we've got the car, we've got my boot. We're trying to understand why I'm still here. They're trying to, they're not people of faith, although one of them, I've always thought he's got something going on inside him. As they were standing outside the, the, the hospital, and this was after Linda uh, had arrived, and for those of you that sort of think these things through and believe in these things, me and Linda, because we've been married for, for many, many years, she's my soulmate. So we are traveling this life together. So things that we face, we, sometimes we face as individuals, but we come together as a couple. There are some things that we have to face uh, as a couple. We both bring different skills to the relationship. And all the good ones are Linda's. <laughs> and, do you know, so she was now with me. So I am back reunited with my soulmate. All my friends are outside. Friends, colleagues. Um, and the, the doors open. And then the outer doors. And nobody left. And nobody arrived. And my mate was standing there and he went to all the others. He's a bit of a joker. Hey, lads, you know what he believes. I bet that's a visitor for him. Now, I go along with that humour when they tell that story. In fact, they tell that story, not me, apart from this. And, do you know, I often wonder whether that was actually the Holy Spirit because his work had done. Because my angel, which I'll talk to you about in a minute, his work was done, decided that I'm back with Linda. I can leave now. And he did, didn't want to leave. He wanted to give my team something to, something to see, something to, something to think about. You know, It gave them a physical sign of something special and different was happening today. And again, remember, I don't consider myself special, but this is a special thing. So the Holy Spirit, my angel at that point, was leaving because I was back reunited. I was in a place of safety. So we started to reinvestigate afterwards what had actually happened. And for some of you, this might be a bit of a challenge because of, you've got this big bloke in front of you telling me all about things like, spirit, angels, things like that. But this is 
my understanding of what I believe happened on this day. And this isn't something I'm trying to convince you about. This is just, so for those of you that have been following me on this journey, I wanted you just to carry on just for a couple more minutes. How are we doing for time? Because I've got no knowledge. I was looking for the big clock, and there isn't one. But what if actually this story I'm about to tell you is, is reality? And, do you know, whether we know it or we believe it, whether we know Jesus, believe in Jesus, whether we believe in all the things that we hear in church life are just uh, stories and sometimes we, we, we mould a story to fit our context so that we're comfortable. I don't believe I've done this because I think that I've gone through it in quite some detail. And I've looked at the evidence. I've looked at my boots. I've also looked at these pictures of these cars. And you can you imagine there's quite a number of pictures in different forms. So can you see where the car door is? Can you see that? Well, as you see, most of the pressure and everything has gone against the car. But the door seems to have come under some force this way. Can you see that? So most of the force, oh, yeah, bang, crash, wallop, but this force seems to be that way. What if we have angels overlooking us, looking after us? What if? And if you're struggling with this, just come with me just for a couple more minutes, because I'm not a silly man. You know, I'm not, not trying to convince you, but I'm just trying to share. What if we have the Holy Spirit and angels looking after us, so that when we are in these calamities, and when it isn't our time to go at that moment, because actually the Lord's got a really good plan, and he wants to see you fulfill that plan, and so he's going to do stuff to intervene and to rescue you. So what if my angel, to get me out, has had to pull that door down? Remember, nobody else is present at the scene. Okay, the first person at that scene was a police officer who was part of my team. His account is that there were two people sitting in one of the cars, one person sitting in the other car, nobody in my car, nobody else around. No emergency services, nobody had stopped at that point. So his account is there was nobody else around. I looked for you. I found you on the motorway. How did you get across the motorway? because cars were still streaming past. How have you done that? How have you been looked after while you've gone across the motorway and been sitting waiting for us? What if something so strong... I actually, do you know, at this point, I always wonder whether I've got two angels, because I'm quite a big bloke. <laughs> but then I think it's a bit greedy. So one, a big one, or two, I don't know. But something, because if you look at the power that that car has been come down, in a different scene, you'll see that actually part of the door frame has snapped with power. How did I get out of that seat across the road? I would have been really hemmed in. Remember, my boot under the seat, jammed. Something has pulled me out of that car with such power that they've pulled me out of my boot, which is stuck. And 
I think, have looked after me until I've got to the side. Remember what I said, when we're back in a place of safety, then the angel, the, the Holy Spirit's work may be done. What, what did it look I was sitting there on the side, my boot missing in the car. My car had been pulled down. I'd been looked after up until the point where I was back with people, my rescuers, who then looked after me, put me in a lorry until the ambulance arrived, and then hours later I came round. What does that look like? And what does that look like for, for us today when we grapple with so many things in life, don't we? We grapple with things that come along in life that, that take us off maybe the course that, that the Lord Jesus would want us to go on. I actually believe when Jesus says in his message that he's got a good plan for all of us. Do you know, I don't think there's anybody in this room that that doesn't account for because actually he knew all of us and knows us. He knows our journey. He knows what you're going through. He knows the times when you're feeling a bit emotional like I have. And I'm almost getting to the end of my talk without actually crying. And this is great. But you know, I'm an emotional guy. And I quite look, like, look at these things and think, wow, what does that look like to, to other people in your lives? So do we, do we have a plan? Do we have a purpose? I actually believe the purpose that, that was in place at that time, although I didn't believe it, was to use all my skills, to use all my years of sitting in church and listening to people like me, to actually use my Christian faith to go outside of my community, to start to be with people, to show them some love and care, because we can. I'm a street pastor. Anybody here a street pastor? Anybody heard of street pastors? Yeah? Do you have street pastors in Chesterfield? Yes, you have. So what they do and what I do now with my time and my skills, I actually use my skills to um, lead and to nurture and to train other people that want to be street pastors. So that's a real privilege that I've got. And what we do is we go out into our nighttime economy in, in, in Billericay, but we also go in a number of different areas in Essex. Some are different to others. You've got to reflect the context of the, the nighttime economy that you're in. So the one thing that I now do, and I believe that I was saved on this day so that I could fulfill this mission, this plan, this calling, whatever your terminology fits, he knew that he had some stuff for me to do. And at that moment, I was no better than any of you. But it was just that it wasn't my time. And he said, Phil, this is what I've done. It's taken a long time for me to get to that point where I understand. And it's been quite an emotional roller coaster. I had no major blood loss, no major bones broken. I was black and blue all over. I had glass still in my body. And Linda, you know, remarked, you know, I, I can't remember when it was, but I was at home in bed recovering, and she was still picking glass out of my, my skin and my arms and my legs. So I'd been pretty bashed up. But it wasn't my time to go. It was my time to then reflect to start to understand, Lord Jesus, what is it that you want me to do? And he's launched me on this roller coaster of leading the street passes, which is a real privilege. So my prayer is for all of you in, in listening to this story. That I, I, it would be 
it will be a waste of this story for you maybe to leave and, and, and uh, go about your business and, and just say, oh, that was, a nice, that was a nice time. He was a funny guy. I actually believe that I've been invited here today, and we've tried to, to set this up a couple of times. I've been coming here a couple of times, but, but been delayed because life gets in the way sometimes. But today is the day that I've been asked to share this with you. And my prayer is, is that you go and you, maybe quickly now, maybe some of you have got some questions and I'll be happy to, to hang around afterwards um, to talk to any of you, if, if, particularly if this has brought up something in you that you've been struggling with. Because sometimes we carry things, don't we? We carry situations in our life, we carry circumstances. Some of us have been through a traumatic event in our lives and maybe that's just holding us back. And I don't believe that that is Jesus' plan for all of us. I think we go through things in life. Some of them are, uh, are meant for us to go through to build us, yes. But there are also other things that come along in life which are just calamities. They happen. And whether the Lord meant that to happen or whether he's aware it's going to happen and then he uses it for our benefit and the benefit of others. And I believe that is what's happened here. So I am happy to, to chat to anybody after. But please don't just sit there thinking, yeah, great, great for him, uh, whatever. This could mean something for you in your own life. And for those of you that may be here that, that don't really know this Jesus, don't know what angels are and Holy Spirit things and all the rest of that. And there is no condemnation of you in anything that I have said because we are all on a journey, whether we've been in church life, whether we believe in Jesus for 50 years, 60, 100 years, whether we've done that, we are still learning new things. We are still being challenged. You know, you've only got to look at life around us where things are occurring all the time. Things are happening. People are saying things sometimes in the name of religion or Jesus. And we're living through that, so we're learning and we're, we're keeping our eyes focused on his plan for us as an individual.